From Washington, this is the Macrocast, a podcast brought to you by Penta and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, March 3rd, and you're listening to the Macrocast. I'm Brian DeAngelis, a partner here uh, at Penta, joined as always by John Fagan and Brendan Walsh from Markets Policy Partners. And we have uh, two special guests today. It's a, it's a packed house. We have John Dick back from Civic Science to talk to us again about the economic sentiment index that uh, the Penta team and the Civic Science team work together on. And we have a new addition we're excited to announce, Elon Moy, who joined us last week after a very successful career as a, as a journalist, most recently on CNBC. Elon will be working with us here in the Penta Strategy DC office as a managing director. Has a lot of great expertise on, on the Fed, the financial crisis, debt ceiling, everything else we talk about every week. So I expect this will be the first of many Elon appearances on the Macrocast. John Dick, let's let's kick it off with you. So um, we had another ESI report out this week. Uh, two weeks ago, we kind of hit, I think, an annual high. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And we saw a slight downtick this week, but I don't I don't think anything to start worrying too much about. But but break it down. What are we What are we seeing in the readings, and what are you seeing on the consumer side of things? Yeah, I mean, to the extent that we overreacted to the quote record. You know, two-week spike we saw last time. This is probably just a little bit of a, another correction, right? And there's such a mixed bag of things in it. You know, it's like we talked about last time. This there's just sort of the ups, the ups and downs within the different metrics. Sort of, you know, where they average out is a point up, a point down from from one reading to the next. But um, yeah, down a little bit, but still, you know, absent last week or two weeks ago, it's still the highest we've seen it really since last, you know, March April, basically when the right. sort of scare of the the Ukraine invasion spooked everybody. Um, but, you know, I think people are feeling tighter about their personal finances as expected. And I think that was maybe part of the plan, right? Uh, optimism for the job market actually spiked pretty nicely. Um, I think people have realized that the the big layoffs in the tech industry that grab all the headlines aren't really impacting the average American all that much. Um but you know we are seeing other signs of softness in in consumers. Um, there's a larger percentage this year um, expect to owe taxes um, in their returns. Interesting, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, look, it's still a majority of Americans still expect um, you know to receive a refund, but the, the number <laughs> they expect to 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 um, uh, to have to owe is a bit higher. The the other thing that that kind of jumped out of our stats this time around because we're we'll track this through you know basically through April. Um, is the percentage of people that plan to use their tax refund to pay down other debt. Um, in in years past, sort of like one of the answer options in that survey is basically putting it aside or saving it. And that had been sort of in, in years past, just the, the number one answer, um, generally like a plurality, we would say, of answers. But this year, it's a larger portion planning to pay down other debt, uh, which could be credit card debt they accumulated through the holidays or their stock, stocking up on now or um, pi- piling up on now. Um, and then just we're seeing shifts in spending, like like a lot of like the rest of the industry is. I mean, that sort of that move from uh, goods to services is real. Um, you know, we're we're the consumer is making trade offs um, very right. very clearly, right? It's not they're not cutting spending across the board. There, we even talk to our customers and our retail customers a lot about when you think about 
they talk about a lot about the term value, right? And 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 we the the sort of layperson understanding the term value is I'm going to get more bang for my buck. But what we talk to our clients about is understand what your consumer values, right? They will make cuts in certain categories of spending to be able to maintain higher levels of spending in areas like travel. Restaurant is re- remarkably resilient. Um, you know, historically for generations, if gas, you know, gas prices and, and restaurant spending tend to operate in the inverse to one another. Right. Yeah. And we're just, we haven't seen that. I mean, people have just been really, really resilient um, going out and, you know, doing spending money on services. So again, mixed, mixed bag, not a great time to be in like apparel retail right now. I don't think it's going to be a good summer for the home improvement category. People want to be out of their houses. They're not putting money into it. So um, yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you on this point, both like the tax return and just we keep seeing at least mixed signals that the consumer is feeling pretty good as we've talked for a while about the shift to services. I mean, do you see do you see travel? Do you see like out of home activities still being pretty strong kind of post tax day heading into the summer? Last year, we obviously had major gas price issues. Who knows what we'll see this year, but it seems like we might see a good little burst on that side of the economy. For sure. I mean, at least all the signals right now. Now, God knows what could happen between now and the summer. But I mean, the, the, we're just careful not to try to overly predict much of anything. But right now, the consumer is at least reporting um, a really heightened level of intent to spend on travel. They may travel differently. Um, we're not going to see quite the same revenge travel of people doing European family vacations that we saw last summer and even you know the fall before that. Um, but people are definitely planning, planning to travel, maybe a bit more domestically, maybe a bit more driving than flying. Um, yeah. but, but they're definitely going to be getting getting out. I mean, I'm you know would be very bullish on Airbnb. I would be pretty bullish on the hotel industry. Certainly, continue to be bullish on on um, on, on restaurant. Um, it's just it's sort of the durable and non durable goods that we'll probably yeah. see the trade offs happening. Talk to me a little bit. We were kind of exchanging emails, preparing for for this week's episode. And you had some interesting points on the, the housing market. And, and Brendan, jump in here. We've we've touched on this a few times in the last few macrocasts. What do what are you seeing from the consumer in terms of like kind of the spring housing market, John? Well, so about 15% of Americans report that they plan to to move in the next um six to twelve months, right? Um, which is a little higher than maybe we'd seen three, four, five, like pre-COVID times. So there's definitely a bit more of a of a, a drive for mobility. Uh what's interesting is that the number one driver of people intending to move, which which used to be things like a new job or to get closer to <laughs> the number one driver now is cost of living. So people are, you know, it's a it's it's a very obvious natural byproduct of the remote work culture we've evolved to is that people are saying, you know, where where I live now is too expensive and I can go live somewhere else and probably keep the job that I have operating somewhere else. And that that def that that's definitely a I don't know how long term or secular of a trend that is, but it's definitely um a, a difference that we see now that we we wouldn't have seen, say, three years ago. And that's really interesting, too, because now the cost of living is also the, the cost of your mortgage. So if you own a house and actually an expensive area and you have a two and a half you know, percent 30 year mortgage, it's seven percent now if you're going to move. So uh, I think that's played a big role in, in you know massively slowing down uh, the turnover. So I think people just are just recently coming to the realization that this is the new normal, like rates are. Yeah. Might not be a seven percent, but it, it, we're not going back to two, three percent, uh, you know, thirty-year mortgages. So you're going to have to start making life decisions uh, based on, uh, you know, a new cost of of, of managing that uh, that mortgage load. 
I, I finally swallowed that bitter pill on my home renovation. And I was like, these are never coming back down. I just got to do it. But yeah, yeah. Well, you have a lot of kids too. So like, <laughs> are you going to wait for rates to come down or you're going to have yeah. some, you know, room to, to get away from them? <laughs> it's also a really good point though, of, you know, coming out of COVID, there seemed to be this constant kind of question mark of like, okay, when does the five day work week return? And we're now what almost two years kind of quote unquote back to normal. And we're still talking about four days and work from home and flexible that to your point, John Dick, I think, you know, you can move further and further out into the suburbs without having to worry about, you know, my commute or my job or changing things. Cause we've kind of got a new normal of working wherever you want to work. There's yeah, no, no, no question about it. And look, the, 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 the average adult can sort of do the calculus of what are all the, what are, what's the cost of all of those different trade-offs and, you know, and, and yes, maybe interest rates are higher, but I, that's going to be offset with, I can buy a lot more house for a much lower total cost if I move to a different place, right. Um, getting out of New York and Silicon Valley and places like that. Um, but and and look, there's certainly surge. There's there's growing concern among the workforce that they're going to be required because there's just more and more of that offices <clears throat> requiring people to return n number of days. And yeah, workers are losing a little bit of leverage slowly in the in that dynamic. Um, but not, I mean, it's not happening overnight. It's just a kind of a slow burn. And so there's some concern about that. But but the idea of you know we're ever going to be back to five days in an office where people have to commute an hour each way. I, I think we're, we're long. I don't, I don't know. If the, I don't believe most people think those days are ever coming back. Yeah. And yeah. that leads into something that I think is being underreported is the commercial real estate market, which is as bad as the, the, the U.S. Uh, housing market is it, the, the commercial real estate is, is really, really bad. We've started to see the first defaults and people just aren't, you know, you might work three days a week, but this is kind of the new normal DC, you know, just have to cut their budget because they realize, you know, People aren't going to have lunch five days a week downtown. Um, but but you know what what used to be great great loans are starting to go bad, and and we're just in the early innings. And I know I have a lot of commercial real estate friends that are are just really really pessimistic about the future. If people aren't going to work from home, we have way too much uh, commercial real estate here in America. You know, another thing I, I haven't seen a lot of literature on, but we see it just here in Pittsburgh is. Um, we used to have a competitive advantage here for um, as a, as starting and building a business in a city like Pittsburgh was just fundamentally less expensive because the cost of wages was just lower here than it was yeah. in you know those point. large businesses. Um, there, there's data that um, essentially like professional jobs uh, wages in Pittsburgh are up almost forty percent from where they were in 2019 because we're not competing for other we're not competing with other Pittsburgh companies for talent now we're competing with companies in Silicon Valley and Chicago and and New York, right? For that same talent. And they're getting offered those wages from at, at that other wage scale, independent of cost of living, wherever they are. So, you know, in some in some respects, if people are migrating to lower cost cities, that is probably good for the city. But the 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 overall sort of rising of the boats um wages nationwide is has been an, actually a, a a pretty big hit for a company like ours in a city like Pittsburgh, because we don't have that competitive advantage anymore. Yeah, it's a good point. Um let me let me shift directions a little bit, maybe, maybe spin around to the other side of the table. John, John Fagan, I'd love to bring you in here. We saw uh, a, several reports from some of the big retailers um, this week and give us kind of their view of what the consumer is doing and kind of what that means for, for their business. 
Well, it sounds a, a lot like what John Dick uh, said, really that kind of on one hand, there's resilience, there's still residual resilience that we're seeing in the consumer side and, uh, and you know, ability to spend obviously a different mix of, of uh, a different mix of, uh, of spending categories skewed toward the services. Uh, but, you know, questions about whether that is going to be durable, whether they're going to continue to be able to hold up in the face of some of these persistent headwinds uh, that have been, uh, you know, weighing on them for uh, some period of time. So this week we got, you know, we got a, a, another set of pretty mixed reports from big box and, and major retailers just to start with the, you know, the home uh, renovation lows came out and uh, and was, you know, painting a pretty challenging picture talking about, you know, reluctance to spend on home goods. Some of this is obviously people really loaded up on, uh, uh, right. you know, deep on lows during the pandemic. They've kind of done that. Uh, as uh, John Dick said, a lot of travel, people getting out of the house uh, and so forth. So uh, and, and that's that's showing. But even when you go into the other categories like Best Buy, hey, they had a good holiday season. But, you know, when they when they cast their eye out to future quarters, uh, they're looking for declining sales. And so the stock uh, was uh, was weighed down by that kind of narrative. Uh, and uh, we've seen, you know, similar kind of dynamics. Kohl's came out this week talking about a challenging macro environment. They flagged inflation. Um, and uh, but then, you know, there are always the silver linings we saw last last week, you know, Walmart working pretty effectively uh, in this uh, in this environment. And uh, and we got a good report from Kroger's. <laughs> and so it really is a very mixed bag. It's a blurry picture. And uh, the uncertainty, you can see it reflected in uh, in the way that financial markets have traded this year. You get equities breaking north, uh, you know, swiftly in January and then having this hiccup moment. Uh, you know, not sure whether the, uh, you know, the 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 strength will, you know, push will be persistent. And uh, and if met with a Fed response, you know, the, the back half of the year is just unusually uncertain. And, uh, right. and that's, you know, this deer in the headlights kind of dynamic for a lot of asset classes, breaking one way, breaking the other and not really being able to get a particular trend going uh, that's uh, that's durable. Let, let me ask maybe kind of a silly or novice question, but, you know, especially I think about Best Buy and you mentioned it with Lowe's. How much of this pullback do you think is due to inflation? How much of it is is because we bought everything we needed to buy <laughs> during COVID? And, you know, maybe in a year from now, we'll all need new TVs and computers again, and there'll be a surge. But right now we're in their moment where I have all the athleisure where I could use. I've got my gym equipment. I've got my electronics. I just don't need anything right now. <laughs> I mean, I can weigh yeah. in on that from, from our side, for sure. We, we, it is, it is very much that from our perspective, you know, I, I used the term the last time I was with you of the sort of Long Island iced tea economy. And I've been, I've been playing that up, that yes. metaphor up a lot with our clients around, you know, the others think we, you know, we think of Long Island iced tea, it's all this just like mixed stuff all thrown into a punch bowl. But the other thing about them is, Long Island iced teas get people super drunk, right? And I think during during the early, you know, the the early boom post COVID, people were flying high, and now they're getting a little bit of the irrational, self loathing hangover. That's also, you know, not entirely realistic. It's like if you look back and draw straight lines from 2019 to 2023, it doesn't look unintuitive. It's just they're sort of like they thought that spike that they saw last yeah. two years was was like permanent which was you know shame on them like they they should have known that that was like an unrealistic because yeah c consumers spent 
in like inflated amounts of money and categories. And I don't mean inflate, I'm using a different. Um, no, but I hear you. You yeah. kind of nailed the point. I walk around my house and I'm like, where did all this shit come from? And yes. what, what did I spend on? Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and how often do you need to buy another television or, you know, right. re- rebuild your deck? It's like, yeah, we, we did that. You know, it's a good point. Seems like this might be a good time to take a break. We'll be right back on the Macrocast. We're going to come back and, um, you know, we've got a pretty busy week next week. So we'll do some previews of of what to expect there. Uh, You're listening to the Macrocast. We'll be right back. Every two weeks, Penta measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations toward the economy. The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index, powered by Penta, accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us at pentagroup.co. We're back on the Macrocast, packed house today, as I mentioned, and we also have a pretty packed schedule for for next week. So I'm going to bring John Fagan and Elon back into this conversation. John, a lot of employment data and obviously next week we'll have the jobs report what are what are we seeing heading into to next week that you're keeping an eye on yeah traders are really going to be bracing for impact on this job report after the january number came in so dramatically above consensus expectations when it was released in early february that of course uh engendered this this familiar good news is bad news phenomenon that we've seen uh, as uh, instead of celebrating the uh, the resilience and strength of the job market, uh, market uh, participants really focused on how the Fed might react to it. The sort of glass half empty dynamic, which is you know this will this will put the Fed in a more aggressive posture for tightening, leading to potentially a you know greater hard landing risk later this year if the Fed has to front uh, you know do more and be more aggressive in the face of a, of a labor market that is just stubbornly resilient, hot tight, however, you know, whatever description you want to say. We've had a big adjustment in treasury yields over the past few weeks. So to some extent, you know, the the reaction may not be quite as virulent as it would have been, you know, a month ago when uh, when everybody was sort of complacent uh, about where these uh, about, you know, their their understanding of the macro environment. And this is happening, you know, it'll be coming close on the heels of uh, Chair Powell's semi-annual testimony on Capitol Hill. Uh, on monetary policy, which should be uh, some some very interesting commentary, uh, it, given the uh, given the the you know what's <laughs> where the Fed is yes, in this tightening yeah. cycle and how how it's drifting into the political consciousness of what the Fed might be doing. Yeah, Elon, I'd love to talk to you about it because you know usually when you go up to the hill with this testimony, you want to say as little about monetary policy as possible. It's not supposed to be a markup of event, but you might not be able to avoid it this time. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Fed does not want to make news when uh, Powell testifies before Congress over two days next week. Uh, But lawmakers want to try to push him as much as possible. So I think you're going to really see that tension between that trade-off between uh, trying to rein in inflation and what that means for the labor market in full display on Capitol Hill next week. And there are a number of uh, political dynamics uh, that I think will be important to watch as Powell testifies too. Um, number one is that the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, Sherrod Brown, has really been the tip of the spear for Democrats in terms of urging the Fed to remember that it has a dual mandate. So yeah. we've talked a lot so far uh, about inflation. Markets are hyper-focused on inflation, but Democrats are hyper-focused on the labor market and on full employment. And Sherrod Brown sent a letter to Powell last fall saying, don't forget, 
that employment is still an important part of your responsibility and something that Congress is going to be watching closely. Since he sent that letter sort of calling out Powell during the uh, sort of Fed's large rate increases, the economy has added over a million jobs. So you can expect that Democrats are going to be hammering home this theme of if the Fed had slammed on the brakes, those one million jobs may never have materialized. And what does that mean for the people who are in those jobs? What does that mean for communities of color, for those who are traditionally left behind in the labor market? And that's going to be the political cudgel that they really use against Powell, I think, during the hearings. Um, the other political dynamic to pay attention to will be that the new ranking Republican on the Senate Banking Committee, Tim Scott, is very likely going to be running for president. So he has not been someone who has been a focal player in terms of monetary policy or economic policy. But if he runs for president in 2024, the economy is going to factor in largely into his prospects for winning and into his campaign. So I'll be really interested to see how he tries to make his mark and how he tries to talk to Powell about his views on the economy, his views on inflation. And it's important to note that he's uh, a black Republican, someone who has also been very vocal about the importance of communities of color and how he tries to balance those different priorities during the hearings next week. Ilan, let me ask you to just kind of continuing on that. Um, what do you expect on the on the House side? This will obviously the House flipped. This will be McHenry's, um, I believe, first hearing with Powell as chairman. Um, I'm pretty sure on that. Any anything you expect there? Yeah, I think McHenry is more of a known quantity at this point. Um, he has been outspoken about the concern of Fed mission creep. So that's something that we heard from Republicans, particularly in the Senate uh, for many years now. I think McHenry is going to continue to drive that home, especially around the issues of climate, around the issue of ESG. There's also a chance that McHenry also brings up the challenge around digital assets. He has been uh, one of the thought leaders in the House on, on crypto, on digital as well. So does he try to talk to the Fed about uh, a stable coin? Does he try to talk to the Fed about CBDC? How does he weigh in? Can he push Powell to say anything new? The likelihood is no. Powell's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty good at this during, <laughs> during these hearings, uh, but he could certainly try. And, and I think it's also important to see what issues do they bring up because that's going to set the table and set the agenda for the weeks and months to come. Alan, one one last question on uh, next week's hearings. Obviously, the the debt ceiling is kind of issue number one up on the hill for probably the next several months. Do you expect? I know Powell will be pretty tight lipped, but I'm sure he's going to get a lot of questions. What do you expect coming out of that hearing around any Fed commentary on the debt ceiling? Yeah, fundamentally, I expect Powell to encourage Congress to raise the debt ceiling. I think he will try to stay away from the thornier political question of how exactly to do that. But the irony here is that Powell was an integral player during the 2011 debt ceiling fight. He was the person that Republicans turned to in order to uh, to understand the way that the markets worked and to understand that if the nation actually defaulted, it would be really, really, really bad. And so he had a big role in sort of convincing Republicans during the last big debt ceiling fight that this was a mistake, this was not a road to go down, that they should raise the debt ceiling without any type of precondition. They should do it cleanly. This time around, he's going to be more politically constrained, but we're already hearing from economists on both sides of the aisle who are urging Congress to raise the debt ceiling without any preconditions 
and warning that if they don't do that, the results could be frightening. So I would expect Powell to urge Congress to act, but not tell them how to do it. Fair, fair. And hopefully they get it done. Great. Well, I think uh, we're going to need an hour next week for the macro cast, given all all that's going on here. But um, why don't we why don't we leave it there? I think we've uh, tackled a lot this week. Um, John and Ilan, thank you for for joining us again. And John and Brendan, always great. Great to have you here. Um, and we'll talk more next week for our listeners. Um, thank you again for tuning into another episode. You can Subscribe and like anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at PentaGRP to keep up to date with uh, the news coming out of uh, the Penta Group team, as well as new podcasts on the podcast channel. Uh, As always, Brian DeAngelis, thank you for tuning in to another episode. Thank you for listening to the Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. 